Hello and welcome to the latest in our Director on Director pod shorts. I'm pleased to say we're back with Mr. Phil Stubbs again. Hello, Phil. Hello. And this month, I believe we're going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick. We are indeed. So let's kick this off. Let's get controversial. What are your thoughts on Stanley Kubrick? Many people call him the greatest director of all time. It's hard to argue with that, I think. It's difficult to pin down one director anyway, but he would definitely be in the top 3%, but that does seem to be pretty popular consensus. And I would find it hard to disagree with. I can't say, personally, whether he's the very best. What is it about him and his style that really appeals to you? Well, if you talk about his style, his films are all pretty different, which is incredible. I mean, I'm pretty sure... 2001 followed Dr. Strangelove. Yes, it did. And for a director to do those two films back to back, that's just incredible on its own. And that's just saying two films. So Yeah. Well, know. in fact, if you take the 60s, you did Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, 2001. And Spartac- Spartacus, of course, he took over, didn't he? But yeah, he dis- he's disowned it. But I, I think it's his But best I think film. he should be proud of it. I, 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 to me, it's his best film, but that's... Uh, that's another. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with that, but it, yeah, it's um, it's a strong piece of work. I don't, I don't. Even the films he disowns or he doesn't think is his best work are masterpieces. Yeah, you know? most directors so... would kill to have that oh, on yeah. their resumes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But that's a typical kind of genius. They, you know, they're never really satisfied with things that other people think are incredible, and uh, he definitely. Now, when you were making Last Chances, you had to do a lot of multiple takes to make sure all your angles were covered. Kubrick took that to another level. I mean, there's a scene in The Shining where Nicholson picks up a phone and he did 50 takes on that. I mean, that's just... There's other scenes where he did 100 takes. Is that right? The thing about that is, and I love The Shining, it's one of my favourite Kubrick films, I think it's a masterpiece. I hate to use that word, but it is. Um, Uh, Stephen King might disagree with you. He would disagree, but he's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I love Stephen King's book, by the way. Yeah. But they're two different, almost two different kind of Yes. Yeah. You know, so I'm not. I don't think they should be compared. But uh, they're both great. But I loved Kubrick's. I I can see why Kubrick did what he did and not do the book exactly. Made it more vague, less supernatural, and uh, I think it's more interesting for it. More psychological, less supernatural. Even though there's yeah. supernatural elements, but way less than the book. Way less because there's monsters and ghosts. And yes. Just, yeah. Yeah. The end. Uh, of what the we're saying. Right. So yeah, hundreds of takes. So my problem with it is, you know, he's a master visionary director who made an amazing film. But what I think he was trying to do was get the actors into a very uncomfortable place so that he could capture that. And that's on the verge of cruelty to me. So that bit does bother me. But, you know, he made an amazing film. I do think that's what he was doing. I, I, but know, he did it in all his films. I think The Shining was the worst, from what I've heard. I don't think he was thinking Take 47 isn't quite cutting it. I don't think it was about that. This is just my guess. No, no that's fine. I yeah. think he was just trying to affect the actors psychologically. There is a, an absolutely amazing two minutes of film on YouTube of Jack Nicholson getting himself ready to put the axe through the door. And he's psyching himself up for that, running around, jumping up and down, getting himself really psyched up. And then again, Kubrick made him do it half a dozen times. Yeah, and that that's from a documentary that came out at the mm. time. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great documentary. Yes. Yeah. If anybody hasn't seen that, uh, it's a great documentary. Shelley Duvall wasn't happy with that. No, I think she got treated pretty horrendously on that yeah. film, by yeah. all accounts. Yeah. My thing with all these multiple takes is I find that Stanley Kubrick takes the emotion out of things. Yeah. Um, one thing he's been accused of a lot is being his films are quite emotionless and cold and distant. But he has this 
vibe to his films that other filmmakers don't have. Yeah. But yes, emotion is definitely missing. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't have much warmth. All the films are quite cold, clinical, scary. Or Doctor Strangelove, which is my personal favourite. I think it's between two films, that and two thousand and one. But uh, Doctor Strangelove is, I think, well, it's a very funny film. Yeah. But the humour is obviously very, very dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, yes, I agree. Emotions, he doesn't make the most emotional films. No. Uh, to end your career on a film of romantic obsession when you can't do emotion is not a smart move. No. But I mean, then yeah, again, well, he didn't expect it to end his career, did he? No, so. he didn't. But we'll probably get to Eyes Wide Shut because that's yeah. an interesting. Yeah, I'll return to The Strange Love. So, at this point, and certainly during that moment in the 60s, the director's auteur, which had come over from the French New Wave and was influencing a lot of British and American cinema. He had made his name and money, certainly throughout the 60s. The, the controversy that followed the leader came with him, so he was able to make this film. But he wouldn't go anywhere to film it. He had to film everything in the UK. Do you think that worked for or against the film, or doesn't it matter? I don't think it matters. I, mean, I don't think uh, you would know. I mean, like Phil Metal Jacket, most people don't know that was filmed in London. And it doesn't really matter as long as you can never tell in the film. But uh, The thing about Dr. Strangelove is... I can't remember which came first. Failsafe, have you, you know, the film Failsafe? Yeah, the uh, Henry Fonda film. It's like which the serious version. Yeah. It's like the serious version of Dr. Strangelove. They were both in production at That's the same time. That's what I thought. That's what yeah. I thought. And they came out within months of one another. Yeah, which is, so. which is bizarre. Yeah. Because they're so similar, but one is a complete dark satire and one is a straight drama. And, and most people today don't even know what Failsafe is. No, Failsafe hasn't uh, really re- resonated in the history books as much no. as... Uh, but Peter Sellers having three roles as well is, at the time, <laughs> that must have seemed crazy. It's like, who's going to play that role? Peter Sellers, who's going to play that role? Peter Sellers. And, 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 and he's brilliant in all of them. So yeah. I know. <laughs> and it's not the easiest actor to work with. That's a whole other story right there, Peter Sellers. <laughs> but no, he's not. But I think arguably Dr. Strange of himself is probably the weakest one out of the three, in my opinion. He just plays it really big. But it works in the film. But I think his other two characters... The president, especially, I think the president is great. The president, the president's phone call to the Russian is one of the funniest bits of dialogue I've ever heard as he's trying to calm him down. Dimitri. Dimitri. (laughs) Now, Now calm down. (laughs) The film's on Netflix, I think, at the moment. So if you haven't seen it, please check it out. Yeah, yeah, so he played the aide to General Jack D. Ripper. That's right. Uh, a very British army guy. Very British. Yeah. And very polite. Yeah. His yes. politeness yes. may have cost a nuclear war. But yeah. yeah. And then to go from that to 2001. That's not just a shift in style. That's a seismic, different universe. It's, yeah. you know, to have that level of creative vision. And here, Neil last year lost his 2001 virginity by watching the film. Wow. I've watched bits of it over the years. You, get, you yeah, can't yeah. help that, yeah. but watching the whole film in entirety. I think yeah. it has to be... I think I was like you. I first saw a bit, but mm. when you watch it in sequence properly and you kind of absorb the film, I really do think it's a masterpiece. People who criticise it now for being boring or something, I, I just think they're missing the point. Yeah, and in the 60s it helped a lot of people, did a lot of drugs with it. They did have yeah. a lot of drugs. <laughs> but it wasn't a financial success, I don't think. No. Um, not it initially. It, what happened was it came out, the press lambasted it, he recut it. But at that moment that it was re-released, we landed on the moon. And that generated the success but that the it had. The interesting thing about that is they filmed it before the moon landing. Yes. Mm. So that shot of Earth... 
if you watch it in the film, does not look like what we know Earth looks like because they hadn't actually seen it yet properly. Yeah. So it's actually quite pale in the film. It doesn't yeah. have that blue jewel light because they didn't know when they made it. So, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Yes, because Earthrise, the, the famous photograph, was taken in 68. Yeah. So there you go. That's fascinating to me is that they mm. hadn't actually seen no. the Earth from space yet, so yeah. they had to guess. But the special effects in that film we have to talk about, they are groundbreaking. Mm. Almost, Phil, almost. Most the, of them, not let, the eight. Let's fly over Scotland, expose the negative. And okay, then no, no. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? That's all subjective because that's in the whole Stargate sequence, which yeah. I don't think that's meant to be state of the art. I think it's just meant to be I'm for the time. Yeah. No, even at the time, it was well, not, just... No, okay, that shot, that particular shot. But, but you look at some of the other stuff that they did filmed, all the moon stuff, the, the journey of the spaceship to Jupiter... And yeah. all of that was just fantastic. And the, uh, the, yeah, the space station spinning yeah, to the blue. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that, that was, was, at the time, weird. was incredible. Yeah. People forget this is nearly 10 years before Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. without it, there would have been no Star Wars. No. Yeah. So I think the special effects, maybe apart from some sequences in the Stargate sequence, are fantastic. And the ending, I think we have to talk about, because I've heard it is a criticism against it, that it makes no sense. I love the fact it makes no <laughs> sense. I think mm. that makes it interesting. But Who I think would? it does make sense. I think it's... Bear in mind, if you haven't seen 2001, you might want to... But then again, if you haven't seen 2001, why are you listening to this? Um, (laughs) The whole point of it was, at the very beginning, they give mankind a huge leap Mm -hmm. in intelligence and understanding. They took it to the next evolution. But with that came violence. Mm. What the star child was at the end is the next leap, Mm. but without the violence. That's what I took it. It was a very positive thing, I thought. I think you've just... There you go, everyone. He's just nailed 2001. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all I was yeah. taking from it. Yeah. But I like films that don't have to explain to the audience every little thing. Yeah. It's giving the audience some respect. Yeah. It's Because res- yeah. Kubrick respects the audience's intelligence. Yeah. And I think not enough filmmakers do that. And, and Kubrick no. definitely And it did. provides uh, entertainment chatting about it afterwards. Exactly, which it's, is a good thing. You want that sort of talking about your but film, I've, don't you? I've heard people in recent years use the ending as a criticism of oh it doesn't make any sense well no it does make sense and you're and you're absolutely 100 correct you've got to use a bit of intelligence with it however his intelligence undid him with what came next because he filmed a clockwork orange he did you know burgess's book lovingly recreated that mm. but the point is you could see it almost as glamorizing the violence as alex does within the story itself mm. that is a big problem with it absolutely i know people who won't watch that film yeah, we're really open-minded, but it's—I it's, wouldn't say it's glorifying it, but it is an unpleasant. It's purposely a film that makes you flinch because it's yes. an unpleasant subject. It's meant to be, yeah, and that's fine. There's places for that too, but I know people who won't watch it. But he tried to uh, disown it, didn't he? So what happened was they released the film in the UK, and there were a lot of copycat incidents. And there was an incident where Trump got kicked to death. There was a lot of outcry against Kubrick. And bear in mind, we're at the time when films like The Devils, The Exorcist, all of this was going on. So Kubrick said enough. Because I think when his family had the first death threat, enough. And he withdrew. It wasn't the census, it was him. It was him. It wasn't the studio, it it was him. And that's why that film could only appear then after his death. And that's why I didn't see it for years. That's why the first time I saw it was in 90... 99 or 2000 yeah because it was, there was a huge re-release of it then. so yeah that film was hidden at that time satellite TV had a lot of European channels so you could actually pick it up from there and watch it and again after that his choices were very strange we then have Barry Lyndon mm-hmm. yeah best cure for sleep I've ever seen oh, um, 
It's not you've, that bad. You've had The Shining, and then you come to Full Metal Jacket, which, you know, we spoke a bit about this in our obituaries part last year. We spoke of Ali Ermi. I mean, that was... He was just on as an um, uh, advisor, and then, you know, he offered him... Yeah, I, I love that story. Yeah, and, you know... and I mean, for that's got to be one of the best non-actor performances oh, in a major film. I I, I think... I can't think of a better non-actor. Uh, no, but he was an actor. He was. Was he, he? Yeah, so what happened was, he was in... I only learnt this through the obituary, I'm not... Okay. He was in Vietnamese Invalided Out, and he went on and studied drama, and he was studying drama in a school in the Philippines. So he was actually in Apocalypse Now as an extra. I did not know that. And he was in The Boys and Company C. Wow. So he did that, and but... He did a lot of courses and training on things. So, and it was Full Metal Jacket that got him to you know to the main part. But after that, he did films like Mississippi Burning, the Frighteners, the Frighteners again. Yeah. Him. So, but if you say Full Metal Jacket, people think of one character. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's that's pretty uh, and he, and impressive. He it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Terrifying man. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. He scared Kubrick. Yes. And not many people can say that. Not many people. No. No. But I think that that whole film, and you mentioned it was all filmed in London. Mm-hmm. You know, Isle of Dogs, they were knocking a lot of that down, so they flew in palm trees. But yeah, the recreation of it. My only thing about Full Metal Jacket is, for me, the first half is just so much stronger than the second half, and it just I just lose interest. But after they leave the the barracks and everything, so yeah. that, that bit is so incredible. The rest of it's fine, but if you say Full Metal Jacket to me, all I can think of is that first half. But it may be a bit unfair. I should... no, well, I, I think so, Phil. I've got to be honest. Because the reason I think that is, and, and you are right, the first half is the best half, but it's structure. And what it's all about is training people to yeah. fight in war. So it's all about structure. But when you get to the second half, there is no structure. No. And that's part of the point of it. So when you get the absolute absurdity at the end, and again, if, if you haven't seen Full Metal Jacket, uh, you might want to skip this next bit. So you get the absurdity of a finale involving a sniper who turns out to be a child. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I mean, the second half is still good. It's not. I don't think it's like one of those films where it, it suddenly loses its quality. But you're but, right. It but, should be seen as a whole thing. You're right. It should be. But the point is, that it's all based in fact. I mean, they did train uh, for the Vietnam War. They trained people better than they'd ever been trained before. Soldiers were split into small groups. They worked together, and then they went to Vietnam, and everything went to shit. There was no training that could have worked for that. And, you know, I just read Dispatches when I saw... Well, Michael Hayes, but... Oh, God, I, relentless, absolutely relentless. The best Vietnam War book mm-hmm. ever. I would agree. And um, I, watched, I read that, and so I, I knew what was happening in Vietnam, and I went and saw this, and I went, oh, right, this is how they trained them. Oh, right, and he's done it right. So the second half makes... So if we absolutely if we put this in the timeline, mm. 1987, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've just had Platoon, year before. Yeah. Platoon exploded. It, it was huge. It the it made the Vietnam War film a huge cultural thing mm-hmm. to see at the cinema. So Platoon came first. Kubrick must have been aware of that. But there were a lot of other Vietnam War films. Was lo- Hamburger Hill was yeah, another and they example. Yeah, but all, all, all within those Vietnam. few years. It, it, yeah. it was weird. There was a Vietnam War explosion. Sorry, pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> Sorry. But, you, you had two phases of Vietnam. You had the end of the 70s when they immediately started making films. You had Boys and Company C, Apocalypse Now, The Deer, Deer Hunter. Hunter. That phase sort of ended after that. And then, yes, this is the second phase where the likes of Hamburger Hill and Vietnam War as entertainment, although... I would argue that Oliver Stone's film 
is better because there's more emotion in it than Kubrick's film. They, but um, I think his point is to drain the the emotion was drained out of him. Um, that's a really good point. Platoon is definitely a very emotional narratively. It's a great emotional story, incredibly well told. I don't know. For me, from Metal Jacket, might be a better film. It's like, yeah, it's, it's all subjective. And then you had uh, Casualties of War. She's actually, I, I rate it better than both of those. That's probably the most, to me, the most harrowing of the lot. Yes, it's a much smaller yeah. story. Yeah, I put a tweet out on that. But for last those, week when for it those who on. know that film, nope. oh my no, okay. god! Okay, so <laughs> the basic setup of Casualties of War is based on a true story. There's a small platoon. One of their member had been killed in a raid. The guy who was in charge of it, played by Sean Penn in the film, he's starting to lose it a bit anyway. And he's got this tremendous anger with him. Mm. So the platoon go out, they raid a village, they capture a young girl, they basically use her for an R and R for rape, basically. Oh, the lovely. Only oh, it's more horrendous it's than absolutely uh, yeah. harrowing film. The only member of the platoon who's against them and stopping this is Michael J. Fox. And he's got already got an odd relationship from something that's happened earlier in the film with Sean Penn. So it's very complex in how it plays. So you've got this Two-thirds of this film is this whole incident. And then the final third is Michael J. Fox finding his conscience to try and go and say, this is what happened and it should be dealt with. So, you know, after things like the Malai Massacre, you've got an yeah, incident... I was just about boiled, the same. Yeah, night, you, you got it boiled down yeah. to this, which actually happened. It's soul-destroying as a film, yeah. but it's a brilliant, brilliant film. It is made incredibly by well made. Brian De Palma. Yeah. Easy to watch? No. No, not but it's, the, But it's... Yeah. Uh, and it has a kind of some of that coldness that Kubrick has, that kind of... It's just showing you what happened, and it's not judging. It's just. But but I think in Department's film Casualties of War, you are with Michael J. Fox. Oh, you saw yes, your yeah. conscience. He's your. Um, so, so he's way in. Yeah, but yeah. Matthew Modine in Full Metal Jacket is not a way no, in. He's not. He's, he's as cold as everybody else. I don't think uh, Kubrick really does audience placeholder character. Who do you follow in The Shining? Who do you follow in Two Thousand and One? He doesn't really. I may be wrong, but I don't think he really ever says this is the character follow every single little thing they do well I, I can only think twice and both were the same actor and that was Kirk Douglas in Spartacus and also in Parts of Glory so we've covered a lot on, on Vietnam but Kubrick himself has covered various other wars and one in particular that's a real strong favourite for me is Parts of Glory Phil what are your thoughts on that? yeah I have very strong thoughts on that because a few years ago I made my first short film based in World War One, and it was about the soldiers being executed by their own side for alleged cowardice. And it's a brilliant film, we've seen it, and it's yeah. available on YouTube for anybody yeah. who wants to track it down. Oh, thank you. So I thought, I hadn't actually seen Powers of Glory, I thought I should probably definitely watch this, since I was a Kubrick fan, and it's definitely on that subject, and wow, it's so powerful. Again, it's, you could argue it's a film in kind of two halves. It's gripping throughout, yeah. but as it gets towards its, it's no spoiler to say, kind of a tragic finale... It just absolutely hooks you. And it's, yeah. again, he doesn't flinch, especially for the time it was made. I'm not sure the exact year of... 57. Was it really? Yeah. For that time period, not to flinch at all. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely well, impressive. This is a measure of the power of that film. France banned it for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. Spain, under Franco, banned it for 25 years. So even wow. after he was dead. But on the other side of it, Winston Churchill said it's the best film on World War One he ever saw. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Because... It's the casualness of the cruelty of some of the superior officers. I probably nicked a bit of it from my short film, but it's so unsettling. And it's the pettiness of it. You know, people will settle in scores. 
Right. Yeah. So, so basically, sorry for the set up part yeah. of glory here. So it was a French mission to take a hill called yeah. the Ant Hill. Yeah. So they attack this and it fails. It's a disaster. Mm. It's badly planned. But the French aristocracy, the, the military leaders can't accept that. So they decide it's cowardice. So they have an instruction to pick three men and execute them for, as cowards. Picked at random, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Supposedly picked supposedly. at random, but it wasn't quite like that. It's... It, and it's a very angry film. It very is. angry it, film. It certainly makes you feel yeah. something by the time the film's over. Yeah. And that's interesting to compare that to Full Metal Jacket because at the end of Full Metal Jacket, you're wiped out. You're not angry. No. But at the end of Pars of Glory, you're angry. Yes. I don't think it's the most celebrated of his films, but I really no, recommend people watch it. Definitely one to, um, so to 50, watch. So 57, that would be one of his first, wouldn't it? Done well, I the think killing, it was first, yeah. He'd done The Killing the year before. Yeah, and then this. <clears throat> I think Parts of Glory was his first kind of celebrated when, yeah. when people start to realise, hang yeah. on, this guy's uh, yeah. got and, a bit of a and, talent. And to be fair, it was Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas yeah. wanted him for that film. Yeah, Kirk Douglas fought for him. Spartacus. Kirk, so I was going to say Douglas brought him onto Spartacus. Didn't yeah, he? and then they fell out big time. <laughs> they did not. But get on well I mean, to talk about Spartacus as well. You can kind of tell it's not really his project, but he did an amazing job because it's a fantastically entertaining film. And, and that's what he thinks on it because, <coughs> and, and ironically, it's got more emotion. And then we come to his last film, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I, Eyes Wide Shut is a very interesting subject, really. I mean, that's one of the longest film shoots in history. How long did it go on for? I mean, off the top of my head, I think it's something like three years. Three years. It was way, way longer than it was meant to be. The Shining overran as well. That, that, I think that was over a year. Yeah, but The Shining had that problem in the middle of it where the set's been down. But Eyes Wide Shut is interesting. To me, it's the only film of his, really, that seems a little bit somewhere got misconceived. It's like throwing paint or a canvas and see what sticks. Yeah, it really, do, it really does. I mean, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise give their all for it. They do. They try hard. Cruise is a, a kinetic actor. In yeah. other words, you know, he, he does all the action films, but he's always got that emotion with him. Mm. And that, I think he's got a really good emotional I range. agree. He's great. And it's not there in this film. The story just isn't, it just doesn't quite hang together it, or something is just off with it. And I mean, what do I know? But I, I don't hey, think... Well, you did a nice homage to it in Last Chances, I believe. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> we won't say any more on that for now, but yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. That's true. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut, it has some effective moments, but as a whole film, it's not my, definitely nowhere near my favourite of his. I I don't think in in film history if it was really received that great. Was he ill at the time? Was he? No, there's no there's attention. no reports of that. But no. he died pretty soon after. Afterwards, yeah. That's yes, I think. I think he died before the film was released. I think. Okay, well, we're coming to the end, but I have one final question for you. Go ahead. If you could take one of Stanley Kubrick's directorial skills, which one would you take? I tell you what, he did. His visuals are unmatched, in my opinion. And you look at what he did with the spinning space station in 2001. At the time, yeah, yeah. that yeah. must have looked incredible on the big screen. I wish I'd seen it on the big screen. I think it did a recent re-release. Anyway, yes. There's this uh, YouTube video, and they cut together the same kind of shot he uses. It's like a triangle, and it goes into depth. So in Full Metal Jacket, you're looking down the barracks, and it goes into this kind of funnel shape. Yeah. And in every single one of his films, he has this shape. And I didn't notice it before, but visually, he knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't just throwing stuff out there and just... He was really on top of his visuals. And 
that's why in a lot of his films the visuals are incredible so yeah wasn't Vi- he a photographer he I would, did yeah. I wouldn't be surprised yeah no he started off he started off as a photographer to, to fame is he took a shot VJ Day is that yes, the, VJ yeah VJ Day. Day of somebody selling Time magazine this with war over with this most miserable vendor alongside it and it became a famous shot so he wow, got, I did not got know his that. commission out of that but he had an incredible eye and mm-hmm. yes he worked with cinematographers but I think he definitely put his visual stamp as well and you can see it which because there's a consistency there especially from 2001 onwards okay well I lied I actually got one more question which I want to ask do you think if he could have got over that travel phobia he clearly had from the 60s mm-hmm. onwards we'd have seen different films arguably I would say probably not I think he just he just found ways to make them in England yeah it'd been interesting with other subject matters but, but I think he's any director we can think of who would not leave his country and Warner Brothers and, and full credit to Warner Brothers when they've got a real talent and they know it and they've always supported them so they supported Kubrick whatever his demands was they supported Clint Eastwood and that was through the period in the 80s when Eastwood films were noticeably dire up until the release of Unforgiven. And then now doing this with Christopher Nolan. Mm. They are doing it with Christopher Nolan. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so. And there's an interesting point. We, to come back to when you, what you were saying earlier on, do we have a director of who, who's so intelligent and expects the audience to be intelligent? When you ever watch a Christopher Nolan film, he doesn't give you anything. He just says... Here's the film, off you go. And I go, brilliant, uh, drop me in it, I don't care, I'll pick it up as I move. So but I actu- think that's actually, fantastic. And, and we'll come back to this in another another one of these sessions, so I'd love to investigate this further, but he is also another director that takes emotion out of his films. The, he, Dunkirk's not emotionally he's, involved. In. He's probably the most, I'm not comparing him because he's very different, but he does have that emotional distance yeah, thing that Kubrick had. I'm not comparing them, but he does have the more. No. He's the most similar director who went for that emotional yeah. distance. And also about Nolan, I've got to say, he's got a dead wife in every single film. I don't know what his issue is, but every single film he's done, dead wife. <laughs> oh, that's stumped you, isn't it? Well, that, start, start there. And on that bombshell, um, maybe the month Kirk. after next. No, I'll come back to maybe that. not we'll Dunkirk. On. I haven't seen it, but yeah, up no, to no, that point. No, no, yeah, not not Dunkirk, but Bill great pleasure again thank you I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to catching up with you more next month absolutely cheers thank you very much bye bye